Good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you would open our ears to the words of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to understand the critical importance, the indispensable importance of love, Lord, uh, in our lives, Lord, both the, the love we receive from you, Lord, and the love we are then to express, Lord, if we are to be of any use at all, Lord. Uh, all the greatest powers and gifts that, that you give are, are worthless, Lord, if they do not carry the love that we have in you, Lord. I pray that you would uh, instill in, in each of us more of that love, Lord, uh, starting today, Lord, and continuing for the rest of our lives, grow us, Lord, in love, uh, that we would be bound together, rooted in love, growing up together in love, Lord, a people useful for the kingdom with our gifts not wasted that you have given us. In your name I pray, amen. You'll notice uh, the bulletin, bulletin says 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. We're actually focusing this morning on 1 through 3. I wanted to read all of it, and we're going to read all of it each time that we meet in this passage, uh, which will be three Sundays, this one and two more. 1 Corinthians 13 is easily one of, the, one of the best known and most celebrated chapters in the Bible. Even, even among uh, people who have only the most shallow and rudimentary knowledge of the Bible will occasionally quote some snippet from, from this chapter. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous, and something, 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 right? 
when I was a child, I used to speak as a child. I used to reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now we see as in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Faith, hope, love abide, but the greatest of these is love. Great stuff for framed needlepoint, right? But as more than one preacher has pointed out, the very first thing that we need to know about 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is that it comes after 1 Corinthians 12 and before 1 Corinthians 14. This chapter falls in the middle of a section in which Paul is rebuking the Corinthians for what they do when they gather together. The section of the book began in chapter 11, verse 17, when Paul said, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. The rest of that chapter, chapter 11, is a rebuke against the Corinthians for trivializing the sacred remembrance of the Lord's table. Uh, and, and the way they trivialized it is that that they treated it as an opportunity for the same kind of gluttony and drunkenness that they were practicing when they went to pagan sacrificial feasts. The more influential and the, and the, the more wealthy among them <laughs> would, would grab up the elements of the Lord's table and they would get drunk and fill their stomachs on those elements before the poorer and less influential people had even received any of the elements. Paul told them that by doing such unloving and self-absorbed things during what was supposed to be the remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in their place, they were bringing upon themselves painful, life-disrupting, and in some cases, physical life-ending judgments from the hands of God. This is a stern rebuke. And we're not talking here about judgment that ends in condemn, eternal condemnation. In fact, Paul specifically says that that's not what's going on here. He says that the judgment he's talking about is a painful discipline from the hand of our faithful Father so that we will not be condemned along with the world. 1 Corinthians 11.32 the next chapter, in chapter 12, Paul declares that the Holy Spirit gives and distributes supernatural gifts of enablement to every single believer for the, the common good of the body, for the building up of the body of Christ. But that chapter is, again, not a pat on the back for the Corinthian saints. It's a correction of the one-upsmanship that they were practicing that was going on in their midst when they, in their dealings with spiritual gifts. Uh, they were placing greater value on the members of the body who had the more visible and prominent gifts. And they were placing less value on the members of the body who had less prominent or less visible gifts. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in that chapter from every, every conceivable angle that the distinction that he himself draws between greater and lesser gifts does not mean that there is any such thing as greater and lesser Christians. But that's what the Corinthians were concluding. 
the failure of the Corinthians becomes even more apparent in chapter 14 when Paul sternly rebukes these believers for exalting the lesser gifts and diminishing the greater gifts in order to justify a very man-centered, very self-centered handling of the meeting of the church. They were stepping on each other in the meeting of the church to, to do things that brought attention to themselves. That approach had given rise to disorder and division instead of godly unity among those saints when they came together to worship. Now, how does all this affect a proper understanding of this morning's chapter, chapter 13? Well, first I need to say that what Paul declares about love in this chapter goes way beyond any one historical context or any one local body of Christians. Paul speaks here of the excellencies of godly love in a way that is unparalleled in any other passage. So an occasional framed needlepoint is probably in order. Indeed, what Paul asserts about the centrality of the love of God and of godly love in God's people, it stands alone in any context. But it's not alone. <laughs> this, this passage has a context, and as always, that's the first thing that we need to understand in order to rightly interpret it. It's important for us to recognize that, again, this chapter, chapter 13, is not a pat on the back to the saints who first received it. It's not an attaboy to congratulate the Corinthian saints for their marvelous display of godly love in their dealings, their relationships with one another as the people of God. It is a rebuke for failing to love well. The way that some parts of this chapter are regularly yanked out of context with no thought given to what the passage actually requires of us reminds me of, of the Spock's funeral segment of the movie Star Trek Wrath of Khan. Some of you aren't even, aren't even old enough to remember that, but I am. Um, in that segment, the producers had the, the audacity to play the hymn Amazing Grace as they launched the dead body of Spock on a, a guided missile casket to the Genesis planet, right? Of course, John Newton, the writer of that most well-known of all hymns, Amazing Grace, has long been absent from the body and at home with the Lord. But if it was possible for him to roll over in his grave, that would have been making him do backflips. My point is that if we're going to come away from our examination of this magnificent chapter of the Bible over the next few weeks, as individuals and as a church that rightly responds to what God is saying to us through Paul, we must understand how this chapter fits into this letter and what God means to accomplish through it. If we come away from the chapter feeling really good about the excellencies of godly love, that's a good thing. But we have not been moved by the Holy Spirit to make the same piercing first-person assessment that Paul makes three times in the first three verses of this, of this chapter, then you and I will surely miss the course correction that God intends this powerful chapter 
to work in our hearts. This chapter is a call through the Apostle Paul to every Christian, starting with himself, with Paul, to steadfastly turn away from everything that violates the, the more excellent way of God-sourced love and to desire, even above the most miraculous displays of, of spiritual enablement and giftedness, that we would love one another as Christ has loved us. At the very end of chapter 12, after calling the Corinthians to apply spiritual gifts in a manner that builds up and rightly values every single member of the body of Christ, Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts and I show you a still more excellent way. I show you a still more excellent way. Over the next few weeks, here's where we're going to go. The last two outline points I bunched together because we'll do those in one message. First, this morning, how to be nothing but noise, verses 1 through 3. Then in verses 4 through 7, a very well-known part of this chapter, what love does and doesn't do. And then finally, uh, time to grow up. Paul talks about the temporary, the partial, and the perfect. And he says, let's grow up and lay hold of the perfect. And then finally, in verse 13, the greatest of all that doesn't end. That'll be our path over the next few weeks. This morning, we learn how to be nothing but noise. Many years ago, I attended uh, an Iron Sharpens Iron conference at Emmaus uh, Bible College, and the keynote speaker was Alex Strout. Many of you know him, dear brother. His central passage was 1 Corinthians 13. As soon as he got up to the podium, and it was a big podium like this one, he reached down and he pulled out a really large metal stock pot. And with the other hand, he pulled out an appropriately large spoon. And then as he began reading this chapter, he started banging on that pan with the spoon. And he did that through the entire reading of the chapter. And, and the people toward the front were going like this. And I can tell you that if anybody was not already very familiar with the passage, they didn't walk away from that reading knowing anything more about it, right? Because they were completely distracted by the, the cacophony of that noise. That was a really great way to drive home a very simple point that Paul is making in the first three verses of this chapter. In those three verses, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms how to make ourselves nothing but noise. And, and the dirt simple answer to that question, how do we do that, is remove love. Just take love out of the picture. Whatever it is that we do, however marvelously equipped we are to do it. Just take love out, and all we are is noise. In verses 1 through 3, Paul mentions four spirit-given gifts that he's already talked about in chapter 12. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, and faith. And then he adds a couple of others that he hasn't talked about yet in this book. The gift of giving, and one other gift that we'll talk about in a moment. Now in chapter 12, Paul presented three lists of spirit-given gifts, and in every one of those three lists, tongues were at the end of the list. But here, in chapter 13, tongues show up first. 
I believe the reason for that is that Paul is setting the stage for chapter 14. When we get to that chapter, you won't have any trouble spotting the fact that that the gift of tongues was being exalted by the Corinthian saints as the most desirable and most indispensable of all of the Spirit-given gifts. But Paul's going to declare in that chapter that when the church gathers together, tongues are the least of all the gifts because unless God provides an interpreter, nobody knows what the person speaking in tongues is saying. That doesn't build up the body of Christ. And that's how greater and lesser gifts are measured. Does it build up the body? In the first three verses of chapter 13, Paul (laughs) speaks in, in exalted terms. He talks about the highest conceivable level of each of the spirit gifts that he mentions. In Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended upon the disciples on that that first Pentecost of the church, the disciples spoke in languages that they had never learned. But they were human languages. How do we know that? (laughs) We know that because all the people who had gathered in Jerusalem for the great festival who came from all kinds of different different ethnic backgrounds and languages and dialects, each one heard the gospel in his or her own language. They were human languages. But Paul ups the ante here. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, does anyone here know the name of the language that is spoken by angels? Anybody here read and write that language? I'm pretty sure it's not King James English. (laughs) In chapter 12, Paul talked about spirit-given gifts of prophecy, words of knowledge, and words of wisdom. But here, he again ups the ante. He takes those gifts to the preeminent level. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries, and I have all knowledge... In chapter 12, he spoke of a special gift of extraordinary faith. It's not the same as, as the, the faith that, that is required that, God, that, that each person must have in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. It's something beyond that. It's something spirit-enabled for certain individuals. And he says, here he says, if I have all faith, all faith, all the faith that exists, so as to remove mountains. In Romans 12.8, Paul speaks of the spiritual gift of giving. And he says that it should be exercised with liberality, with great generosity. But here, he goes beyond generosity. He says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. And finally, he says, if I deliver my body to be burned. There's a lot of discussion about what that last one means, but I have to say, in light of the consistent pattern that Paul has used in the the other gifts that he's mentioned, always carrying them to the preeminent possible expression of the gift, I take this last gift in verse 3 to be an extraordinary willingness to deny one's own physical well-being for the sake of the gospel. I don't know what the name of that gift would be. I don't think it's important to, to give it a name. But the mental picture I have here is of a group of Christians that are being led to the place where each one of them will have his head removed because of the gospel of Christ. 
as happened, by the way, in Syria at the hands of jihadist uh, ISIS members a few years ago. I think the gift that Paul's talking about here would be the one possessed by the Christian who, as that line is progressing toward that point of execution, this guy comes out of the line and he moves up to the front of the line and he stands in front of those, those executioners and he says, Jesus Christ is Lord and it is my privilege that my head would be first in order to honor Him. That's kind of what 1 Peter 4 is talking about. Talking about rejoicing when we share in the sufferings of Christ. In these three extraordinary verses, Paul sets before us the highest conceivable expression of every spirit gift that he, that he speaks of. Has any Christian ever possessed all faith? Has any Christian ever possessed all knowledge? Unreserved willingness to give up every last possession that he owns to care for the poor? Unreserved readiness to deny himself another breath in order to exalt Christ? If so, I haven't met him yet. Or her. But even as Paul imagines what it would be like to himself possess such an unlimited, unhindered measure of the Holy Spirit's supernatural enablement, he says three times, but if I do not have love. But if I do not have love. But if I do not have love. Now I take Paul's use of the first person here to mean exactly what it looks like at face value. I believe Paul is presenting a challenge to the church that he knows full well must begin with himself. The more excellent way to which Paul is exhorting both himself and us is not the pursuit of unlimited, supernatural, spirit-empowered enablement. It is the unrestrained pursuit of godly love. For the child of God, <laughs> love is the sine qua non of usefulness and significance. That Latin phrase that's become part of, of the English language literally means without which not. If, if the thing that is the sine qua non is taken out of the picture, all you're left with is the not. Nothing. The grace of God is the sine qua non of our salvation. If it were possible to take the undeserved grace of God toward sinners out of his, his plan of redemption, salvation would belong to no person ever. Because the one and only thing that any of us, that any of us has ever deserved from the hand of God is eternal condemnation. That's what we've earned by our sin. If salvation is not a grace gift, then salvation for human beings doesn't exist. Grace is the sine qua non. In the same way, love is the sine qua non of every redeemed saint's usefulness and significance as a child of God. And please notice, I did not say that love is what saves us. I said love is, is the without which not of usefulness and significance for every person who has been saved 
by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Without love, without love, our usefulness to advance the kingdom of Christ on earth doesn't exist. In verse 3, Paul says, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I do not have love, it profits me nothing. Now, now what was profit as Paul reckoned it? For Paul, profit was to finish his assigned race well. And to hear from his father, well done, good and faithful servant. Paul says here that even if he gave up every possession that he owns to care for the poor, if he does not have love, he receives no such profit at all. All of his efforts will have accomplished nothing. There will be nothing praiseworthy. I find that a little stunning. You know why? Because, because if you ask most people to, to come up with an act that would, that would be a marvelous display of love, and, and you suggest as one of those possible acts giving everything that I own, selling everything that I own and taking the money and giving it to care for, for the poor and the downtrodden, the widow, the orphan, and the alien... I would expect that many people would say, well, that's about as close to, to active love as you can get. But Paul says no. Paul says no. It's possible to be even that generous, even that charitable, and still not be loving. You know why? It's because godly love has a goal. Godly love is very, very purposeful. And the goal of godly love is always to move other people Christward. Not to move other people toward greater financial prosperity or toward greater temporary relief from the ravages of life under the curse. Beloved, it does another person no good whatsoever to make them more comfortable until they go to hell. The goal of godly love is to move other people Christward. It's to take people by the hand and put their hand in the hand of Jesus and let Him have His way with them. Our love for others must have the same goal as Christ's love for us. Paul told us what Christ's goal was in His love for His people in Ephesians chapter 5 when He gave instructions to husbands. He said, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, and here's the purpose part, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. Does that sound purposeful to you? The goal of Christ's love for His bride is to present her to Himself made ready to dwell with Him forever. Made ready by Him. The goal of our love for our brothers and sisters in Christ and for the lost is to present them to Christ knowing that He alone will make them ready to dwell with Himself. Charity by itself, generosity by itself won't accomplish that goal. I've known of churches who sent 
A whole group of people to South America, I knew of a church, sent a whole group of people to South America to work with Habitat for Humanity to build houses for poor people. They gave them zero instruction about sharing the gospel. Zero initiative or exhortation to share the gospel. Just go down there and help them build houses. Guys, that's not a missions trip. I'm not saying there's something wrong with helping people build houses. Jesus is compassionate. He healed more people than any of us will ever count. God is the the preeminent advocate of the widow, the orphan, the alien, the poor, the downtrodden. And we are supposed to follow in his steps. But guys, making people more comfortable until they go to hell is not the objective of godly love. Paul's point here is not merely that godly love makes us useful to move others toward Christ and that the absence of godly love makes us useless. That is one of his points. His point is that his point goes beyond that and it includes this. A complete absence of godly love, if such a thing were possible for a child of God, would make your and my very existence pointless. He says in verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of of angels but do not have love, I have become, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If you've raised children all the way to adulthood, you know there are three things that should come with a minimum age of possession. Alcohol, cigarettes, and drum sets. Okay, especially the cymbals. Paul says in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and I know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Not I'm not worth much. Not I am compromised. I am nothing. Beloved, if I do not have love, the noise that will distract both lost and saved people from Christ will be me. I won't merely be the cause of the noise. I will be the noise. If I do not have love, I am nothing. Even if I have the greatest enablement of the Holy Spirit that the world has ever seen, I am nullified. I am canceled out. I am nothing. If I don't have love, there's no reason for me even to be here. We need to understand that Paul is very intentionally taking this point to an extreme that in reality cannot exist. If you read all that Paul says in his letters to the churches about the new creation that is absolutely true of every single person who has heard the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, and has believed that message and put their faith in Jesus Christ, if you read what he says is true of every one of those people, there's no way you can conclude that Paul actually thinks there's such a thing as a redeemed child of God who is without any vestige of godly love. That doesn't happen. But Paul is speaking in absolute terms here to drive home mercilessly a critically simple point. It is love that makes us who we are as the children of God. It's not extraordinary spirit enablement. 
It's not extraordinary works of charity and self-sacrifice. It is the love that drives our acts of service to others on behalf of God. That love defines us. How will they know that we are his disciples? By the love that we have for one another. In John 17, how will the world know that the Father sent the Son? Jesus says, Father, I and you and they in me perfected in unity. The unity that only godly love produces. Do you, do you guys ever think about the fact that, that the, the way we love each other has more to do with the effectiveness of our evangelism than the things that come out of our mouth? Because if you go read John 17 and then come back and tell me if that's not true. Paul is speaking in absolute terms to make this critically important point. And that none of this should su surprise us. The only worth that I have for anybody is Christ in me. Before he gave me life, I was dead. No, I, I walked around, I breathed air, but he said I was lost and dead in my transgressions. Dead people don't do valuable things. After I've gone home to the Lord, nobody's going to say, oh, I went to Tom's grave today, had a really good time with him. He's a great guy. I love hanging out with him. Now, here's what's true of Paul. Here's what's true of me. Here's what's true of you. If you belong to Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in this flesh, I live how? By faith, by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Purely by the life-giving grace of God in Christ, I have been brought into such inextricable union with Jesus Christ that I do not exist apart from my union with him. There's no such thing as Tom Wright without Christ. That's grace. <laughs> so, here's the deal. So, if I walk in a manner that hides him, there's nothing left to see. If I do not have love, I'm nullified. All right, so what kind of love is Paul talking about? Well, that, that's a critically important question. We get this all wrong if we define love on man's terms instead of on God's, and those are very different terms. <laughs> Paul's not talking about the kind of love that people fall into. I, I'm sorry, but it drives me crazy, crazy when people talk about falling in love with God. You don't fall into that. You, you behold God, and that beholding causes you to adore Him to delight in him, to love him above all things, but you don't fall into it. Paul is not talking about the kind of love that depends on what the loved person does or does not. It doesn't, he's not talking about a love that depends on what that person's like. He's not talking about love that's driven by emotion. In fact, he's talking about a love that overwhelms and overcomes emotion, that subordinates emotion, and then remolds it and remakes it into, the, into a delight that has nothing, that's nothing like feelings that just happen to us. 
it's just unassailable, right? Paul is talking about the love of God given to us. God's love given to us and overflowing from us to others. Many of you have heard this before, but there are three different Greek words that are commonly translated into English with the word love. Eros, phileo, and agape. Now, I, I, I'm going to oversimplify. I know people will jump on me if, they, if they've read all about this, but I'm going to oversimplify the first two, eros and phileo, and that's because I don't want to spend a bunch of time uh, talking about the nuances of what Paul's not talking about, okay? Eros is erotic or sexual love. It is by definition self-indulgent. Phileo is friendship love. It's really good, really good love. It's the love that you have for those that you consider to be lovable. Paul doesn't use either of those words here in 1 Corinthians 13. Instead, nine times in 13 verses, he uses one Greek word for love, and that word is agape. I have a text-to-speech app that, that calls it agape. The Greek word agape was rarely used in popular Greek literature of the day. Phileo was the most frequent use, uh, used word. But the word agape is used 116 times in the New Testament, 71 of those times by the Apostle Paul. It is the same word that's used to identify the love that originates in God himself, the love which is an attribute of the living God. The love whose greatest expression in all of human history was the death of the Son of God, the Lord of glory, in our place to pay on the cross our eternal sin debt to God. I'm going to read 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8 real quick. By the way, 1 John 4 is the only chapter in the Bible that uses the word agape more times than 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 7, 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might have life through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. The love that both Paul and John exhort us to pursue as the greatest of all pursuits is God's love in us. It is the love that drew salvation's plan. It is the love that brought Christ down to man. It is a love entirely foreign to our old nature that has now become our new nature, our true nature, purely by the grace of God. Did you know that, that when you are unloving, you are violating your true nature as a child of God? I'd love to talk a little bit about what real hypocrisy is for Christians. You know, putting a, putting a mask on, but I don't have time. Think about that a little bit. What is real hypocrisy if your true nature is to be like Christ? 
if you've been recreated in holiness and righteousness of the truth in the image of Christ, what is hypocrisy? It's when you don't act like who you are, okay? The conclusion is this, beloved. Without love, you and I are nothing. You can have the most powerful supernatural enablement that the Holy Spirit has ever given to any child of God, but without love, all that power would be wasted. It would be no good to anyone. We are quick to exalt the knowledge of the Bible as the most indispensable part of our usefulness as ambassadors for Christ. But the truth is, you could memorize the whole Bible. You could have an answer to every question that anyone would ever ask about the Bible. But without love, all that knowledge would be canceled out. Useless. I'm very thankful for the dear brothers in Christ in this, in this community of saints who have lovingly pointed that truth out to me when I violated it. And I have violated it. There were times when I was so enamored with being right that I was not loving towards some of you. You can have more faith than Paul or Peter, but without love, that faith will be of no value to anyone. You can have more courage than Daniel, but without love, your courage will honor only you, not Christ. The beauty of this exhortation, brothers and sisters, is that we already have the sine qua non of Christian usefulness and significance. We already have the without which not. We don't have to go out and find it. We don't have to agonize over how to get it. When God brought us into union with Christ, He made His love our nature. Paul's call to us here is to stop acting like we are who we aren't and to be who we are. To live as, as the Christ-bearers that God has made us in this world. As those who display the sacrificial, self-denying, life-giving love of Christ in all that we do. Dear Father, humble us to hear the, the strength of this exhortation that has everything to do with our usefulness to you for all the days that remain to us on this cursed earth. Make us love others as Christ has so wonderfully loved us. We ask this in his incomparable name. Amen.